Hey, this is Larry H. Russell here, featured columnist at CLNS Radio and executive producer of the number one Boston Celtics podcast on the web, Celtics Beat. And now, author. That's right, author. My debut book, Fall of the Boston Celtics, How Bad Luck, Bad Decisions Brought the Mighty Celtics Empire to Its Knees and Ushered in the Dark Ages, has already been called the definitive account of the infamous doldrum period in Celtics history. You think the Celtics are struggling now? Well, you've got quite a short memory. Get the inside story from executives, general managers, staffs, players, media, fans, you name it, as I take you through a time in which how the Boston Celtics fell from the shining city on the hill and became entrenched in purgatory. And you'll see why. That's Fall of the Boston Celtics, available on clnsradio.com on January 5th. And you can't wait for the release? Well, tweet the hashtag Fall of the Boston Celtics to me at CLNS underscore LHR. That's hashtag Fall of the Boston Celtics at CLNS underscore LHR. And we'll pick one lucky follower and hand out a free copy on the January 4th episode of Celtics Beat. And now, on to your regularly scheduled programming. Happy New Year, Celtics fans, and welcome to the first 2015 episode of CLNS Radio Celtics Beat. I'm your host, Rich Conti, and today I'll be joined by my co-host, Dr. Andre Snellings of Rotowire, as well as a very special guest, former Boston Globe sports writer Bob Ryan. We'll talk to Bob about his 44-year career as a writer, his relationship with the Celtics franchise in the NBA, and about his recently published autobiography, Scribe, My Life in Sports. Speaking of books, Celtics Beat executive producer Larry H. Russell recently published a book titled Fall of the Boston Celtics, How Bad Luck, Bad Decisions Brought the Mighty Celtics Franchise to Its Knees and Ushered in the Dark Ages. The book takes an in-depth look at the period between the 1986 and 2008 championships. It features exclusive interviews with former players, front office staff, members of the media, and more. It's available on clnsradio.com starting tomorrow, January 5th. CLNS and Larry ran a Twitter giveaway for a free copy of the book, and we have the winner to announce right here on Celtics Beat. Congratulations to Matt DiFilippo. You've won a free copy of the book for tweeting the hashtag Ball of the Boston Celtics from your Twitter handle, at Matt underscore DiFilippo. I also want to remind folks that social media is a fantastic way to engage with CLNS. Catch up with us on Twitter at CLNS Radio. Visit us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash CLNS Radio. Well, we'll be joined by Bob in a few minutes, but I want to welcome my co-host. How are you today, Andre? I'm doing good. It's a new year. Yeah, well, the big news this week for the Celtics was the Friday evening homecoming for Rajon Rondo. Celtics fell to the Mavericks by a score of 119-101, and Rondo hung 15 points on them in a 31-17 first quarter, including three three-pointers, and finished with 29 points and a career-high five made three-pointers. And the week of the trade, I was lucky enough to host an episode of Celtics Beat featuring Celtics and Sports Hub play-by-play man Sean Grandy. And during that interview, Grandy seemed to know that something was up and the likelihood of Rondo being traded had increased dramatically. Lo and behold, a couple of days later, Rondo was shipped off to Dallas in exchange for Jameer Nelson, Brandon Wright, and Jay Crowder. What do you make of the trade and what stood out to you in Rondo's return to the Garden on Friday? Yeah, it's interesting on a lot of levels, especially with kind of the way things played out this week. Um... We've talked a lot before, before the trade, obviously, as to whether Rondo was completely bought into the future of the, this current Celtics team or whether, you know, we talked about his aggression level. Like, was he aggressive enough or, you know, was he trying to show that he could play the third wheel on a champion and he didn't want to overstep his bounds? And we had all these theories. And 
some of what's coming out this week seems to indicate that he was not fully into it for for the last bit um i think he made the comment this week that he hadn't played defense in two or three years or something um in boston but now that he's in dallas they want him to play defense again and obviously that's completely counter to anything that that stevens has been his whole philosophy is what you would think so it seems that rondo's effort and energy level those last years uh in boston maybe were not what they should be and for a player like him who so much is based so much of his game is based on effort and hustle and energy that's a big deal and so um that homecoming on friday the rondo that was there on friday i don't think anybody including dallas can expect to see on a daily basis Mm -hmm. i mean knocking down five trays and scoring almost 30 points but it to me it 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 was it almost seemed like it was him trying to show like okay I'm going to work hard tonight to show you guys what you missed out on by not buying into me, or at least that was kind of how I read it. Yeah, it was interesting, those comments about playing defense, and then some comments that Mark Cuban had made right after the trade kind of hinted at some subtext there that some of this uh, lack of effort, uh, if you put it, or lack of commitment was kind of by design on part of the organization. If you look at the comments about defense, he was quick to point out that the team, you know, had Avery Bradley out there kind of playing, you know, the point of attack on, on, on defense and, and maybe, you know, kind of hinting that he was asked to take a backseat there. So, you know, who knows, as, as I mentioned on a previous episode of Celtics Beat, the truth is always a, a lot less neat than than the reality. And I think, you know, certainly Rondo is a guy that, that gets more engaged as the stakes go up. I think that's human nature and that tied to some of the comments that, that Cuban made. But I do also wonder if he was asked to dial it back in certain ways because the team was in kind of more of this development and less of a win-now phase. And how, however it worked out, clearly there was, you know, some, some lack of alignment there in the organization. In many ways, you know, this trade, while we're talking to very, very different players, both in terms of style and I think in terms of impact on the franchise and 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 on winning and losing. But this trade reminds me a lot of, of the Antoine Walker trade in the sense that Walker had just developed such a level of gravity or such a degree of gravity around him for good or for bad that really had a significant impact on, on how the organization was going to be able to move forward. And and Ainge just kind of um, realized he needed to to break that and, and get rid of that if the, if the franchise was going to move forward. And so, again, while I think they're very different players, I think some, something very similar may have been happening with, with Rondo and, and Ainge just decided, hey, however we're going to do this, we have to take some of the focus that's been centered around this this one guy and, and remove it if we're going to be able to move forward successfully. And, you know, a lot of the talk about the trade was flexibility and certainly it gives you salary cap flexibility going forward. Uh, you've got the flexibility of the trade exception. But I wonder if it gives you flexibility and now you've kind of created almost a complete tabula rasa here for the for the organization going forward so that was my kind of take it really you know in in retrospect looking at it seems very similar to the walker trade (laughs) okay i have two comments first you used tabula rasa in a sentence and and made it sound really smooth (laughs) um (laughs) and secondly um you you uh, bring up the 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 walker wiggle you know so another element of his trade was his return and of course rondo is a a free agent do you think there's any chance we we see him back in green 
um, again in the near future? I'd be surprised, but hey, you can never rule anything out. As you said, I, you know, when Walker was traded away, the last thing I expected to happen was was him coming back. And coming back actually played a, a role in the rebuilding of the team. If you look at the way the salary cap mechanics worked themselves out, it was, you know, his return played a part in that. And uh, I believe also it facilitated a trade that landed uh, Rashid Wallace uh, in Detroit and helped them to a championship. So, so anything <laughs> is possible, but I I'd be surprised. Well, after months of anticipation and hard work, CLNS Radio is proud to announce the release of our new mobile application. Now you can enjoy all of your favorite Boston sportscasts from one place on your iPhone. With this exciting news comes an exciting contest for our loyal listeners. CLNS Radio is giving away two tickets to a Celtics game to a lucky fan. The best part is entering the contest is easy. All you have to do is like CLNS Radio on Facebook, download our new app, and then give it a rating and a review on iTunes. And at the start of the show, I mentioned that at Celtics Beat executive producer Larry H. Russell recently published a book titled Follow the Boston Celtics. I encourage listeners to go to clnsradio.com starting on January 5th to get a copy of Larry's book. Again, it's Fall of the Boston Celtics. Our guest today contributed to Larry's book, and there are very few, if any, people who are as familiar with that period in Celtics history, as well as virtually any other period in franchise history, than Bob Ryan. He barely needs any introduction at all, but he's recently published an autobiography titled Scribe, My Life in Sports, and it's a fascinating read with insights not only into the evolution of his career, but also into the ups and downs of the Celtics franchise. Our interview with Bob is brought to you by BeatsAndEats.net, food, comedy, pop culture, and more. That's BeatsAndEats.net. Thanks for joining us again on CLNS Radio Celtics Beat, Bob. Very good. Nice to talk to you. In your book, you describe meeting Red Auerbach while you were covering BC games for the college station. What was that like, and did that earlier meeting have any impact later when you took over the Celtics Beat for the Globe? Well, the second part question is absolutely not. And uh, it was very simply this. I was the play-by-play broadcaster, <clears throat> and he was in, uh, in attendance scouting uh, John Austin, uh, a great player at BC who uh, was from Washington and, and therefore read, who loved all things Washington, who had a proprietary interest in, in any player from Washington. So anyway, he's, I'm, I'm looking up, and uh, they're, he's, they're leading him. Someone's leading him across the court uh, to uh, do an interview. And uh, I did not uh, know, I uh, was not... So it was, it was some 20, let's see, either 20 or 21 uh, years old. I don't know where you, oh, 66, I was 20. And um, um, what can I say? It was a, um, it was a very uh, exciting uh, but uh, jarring experience, you know, because this is the peak of his fame. Uh, he's, he's the great Red Auerbach, and, and I'm this kid at BC, and I'm supposed to be interviewing him. So it was obviously uh, it was a thrill, uh, and it was a challenge as well. And your first assignment covering the Celtics was the opening game of the 69-70 season against the Cincinnati Royals and another familiar face from your days at BC, the Royals head coach and former BC coach, Celtic great Bob Cousy. Cousy is a thread that runs through the book, starting with your earliest experiences writing about sports. What was it like getting to know a player that was part of your initiation of the sport on a professional and even personal basis? Remember that when Bob Cousy retired, he was... Uh, Mr. Basketball. That was a title given to one person in the 20th century. Just remember that. So he was the, uh, one of the, you know, the, probably the most person, the person most associated with the game of basketball in America, if not the world, uh, was Bob Cousy. And so now he's the coach at Boston College. Uh, one year later, and uh, I'm, uh, uh, I first meet him as a 18 uh, year old uh, kid from the radio station. So uh, we got, but you know, he was very gracious with the kids, and he was fine. And well, we were always proud of the fact that Bob Cousy was our coach. I mean, this was—I I can't even give you a, 
I don't know, if, if Michael Jordan became a coach at your college one year after he retired. That would be the closest to that generation. So um, that's what it was like. And, and now here he was six years later, having retired from coaching at Boston College and then uh, not knowing that he was going to be uh, accepting a job uh, coaching the Cincinnati Royals. Uh, he didn't retire from B.C. because he had the job with the Royals. That came later. Uh, but here he was coaching the Royals, and just so happened that the first game of the 69-70 season was Cincinnati at Boston. And, of course, the whole scenario where I was covering that game, not knowing that uh, two days in advance, uh, was uh, at age 23. Uh, and who's the coach but Cozy? It was just kind of a connective tissue that was comforting for me to know that I had Cozy over there to talk to, uh, ask about insights uh, on the game, because I, I didn't know anybody on the Celtics at that point. And you started covering the Celtics at the outset of a significant transition for the franchise coming off the Russell era. A lot of folks assume that the Bird era was when Boston really first embraced the Celtics in the NBA. But did any of the popularity of the Celtics in the 80s have roots in that earlier Collins-led era? Without question, Dave Collins was a transition, a transition figure. Keep in mind that when, they re- when Russell retired, they had won the 11 championships in 13 years, and their average home attendance uh, regular season was hovering in the 7,000 range. And, yes, they would sell out in the playoffs, but, uh, and maybe for a big game against a Philadelphia or a Los Angeles, but uh, basketball was on the back burner compared to hockey, very, 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 very much so. And it, didn't, it wasn't an instant transformation, but it was, a very, it was obvious right away that uh, the, the tendencies were starting to rise. Cowens was a key figure. The team was better uh, in 70 and 71 than they had been. They won 44 games. They did not make the playoffs, but they were definitely a team on the rise. And Cowens was the, 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 uh, the new star, along with the great John Havlicek, uh, who was at his peak. Uh, but uh, Cowens was a magnet, and there's no doubt that. So by the time uh, they won the two championships, 74 and 76, uh, basketball had a very, very different place in Boston. And that was going against the grain, uh, uh, the tide there, because of the Bruins thing. Mm-hmm. The Bruins thing was never bigger than it was in, the, in that era from uh, 1969 uh, to, uh, to, to Orr's reti- uh, you know, exile to Chicago in 76. Never bigger, and um, probably never will be as big again as the Bruins, and that the Celtics will manage to grab their own share of that pie, which is a very difficult thing. But So they set the table, but no question, there was never when it was far short of the uh, situation in the Bird era where the Celtics actually overcame the Bruins, overtook the Bruins, and, and were actually more popular. Um, that's the only time that's ever happened in Boston history, and I suspect it's the only time it ever will happen. And most folks obviously associate you with the NBA and basketball, and you talk a lot in the book about your passion for college basketball. The other thing I found really interesting was your passion for baseball, and of course you spent some time covering the Red Sox as well. In the book, you describe your experience with the Red Sox 1967 impossible dream season while you were at Boston College. How would you compare the relationship that the city and the fans have had over the years with the Red Sox franchise versus the relationship with the Celtics? Baseball's ingrained in the DNA of Boston. The Boston baseball interest dates back to the 1870s. The first league, uh, of formal league in America, uh, was predated the National League, uh, was dominated by a team from Boston from like 1871 until 1875. National League was formed in 1876, and the Boston team was a charter member. So we can go on and on about the history and the great-grandfather. We can go back great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. <laughs> thing with passing along the Boston love and tradition of baseball. So that's, that's just different. Uh, the Celtics were formed in 1946 uh, by a man who did not know a thing about basketball, uh, Walter Brown. He was the owner and uh, he, was the, uh, he ran the Boston Garden and the Bruins, and he was a hockey man through and through. But uh, he uh, got a team in this new league because, uh, like many of the other people, the goal was to fill the empty dates in the building on nights when there was not a 
hockey game or a boxing match or a track meet, and that's where basketball fit in Boston in 1946. And he did not know that he was going to personally fall in love with the franchise, and it became like a, a an organic thing, a, 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 another uh, offspring for him. Uh, but truly knew nothing about basketball when he started. Walter Brown. He became the most beloved owner in Celtic history. He died in '64, <clears throat> and um, so the Celtics have a, uh, a a fine, firm footing in this town of 68 years. But uh, compared to the Red Sox, it's they're, they're just getting started. <laughs> All right, Bob, this is Andre. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit to Dave Cowens. You talk about him a lot in your book. Uh, you say he's your favorite all-time Celtic to cover. You, you give a lot of good anecdotes about his uniqueness, both his unique style on the court and his uniqueness off the court, his ability to articulate himself um, using letters, at, uh, written letters at that time. So my question is, with the way that athleticism has kind of exploded in the NBA in recent years, do you think that a player with Cowan's style and skill set could still win the MVP in today's game? And then as a follow-up, who in today's game reminds you most of Cowan's both on and off the court? Well, given that when comparisons are made about athletes, uh, always it, it always inherently uh, starts with race. It always starts that you, you, you very seldom find people automatically comparing uh, black guys to white guys and white guys to black guys. So that's number one. Uh, so that in terms of a white player who plays like Cowens, uh, the closest thing, and this is how far removed we're talking, but I do have a, a comparison. You're looking for a left-handed guy around six feet eight with great hops, great aggressiveness, passion, fire, plays hard, uh, and, and gets, more, uh, gets everything out of his ability. Uh, and that guy is David Lee. Mm -hmm. Just because of the left-handed and the red-headed throw that in, see, and all that. Uh, so there's your comparison. Well, David Lee's not going to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> David Lee's not going to an All-Star game. Okay, now, no, he's an, I like David Lee, and anybody in the league would like to have David Lee uh, on their, in their mix, but that's, how, that's what we're talking about. We're searching for the next Dave Cowens. Now, um, the skill set, since there's nobody quite like him, I, I, I'm, I'm just, we were just going to have to have, use conjecture here to figure uh, that he could uh, be very effective. Could he be good enough to be an MVP? That's all, that's all dependent on the season. You know, the year that he earned it, he deserved it. And consider that that was at the peak of the of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar era, but anybody will tell you that he deserved that MVP that year. He'd be a great player. He'd, he, he would be among the rebound leaders again. He would uh, be, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's nobody that wouldn't want Dave Cowens. He is a legitimate Hall of Famer. But I haven't seen anybody that completely matched him. Uh, that, uh, you know, and, and I just saw one more thing we're talking. I, I thought maybe that's where you were going. We might as well throw it out there. And, and Celtic popularity in the 70s, anyone would be completely and terminally naive to think that the fact that he was white didn't have something to do with his attractiveness to the fan base. There isn't any question. How can anybody deny that? Boston was a, a, a very controversially, racially uh, tinged city in those days. This is When he came in, it was four years before the great busing incident of 1974. So you know where Boston was heading. It was uh, what Boston was like. And so naturally, a, a largely white fan base embraced this guy. There isn't any question about it. He didn't encourage it. God knows. He didn't like it. He didn't uh, thrive on it. He, didn't, he wasn't comfortable with it, but it was there. I'm going to follow up on, on that last thing you said. So you, you feel that, um, that the race played an issue or, or played a part in Cowens' rise to popularity in the 70s. Um, and then, either coincidentally or not, 
the greatest Caucasian player of the 80s also came through Boston. Do you think that race also played a part in how Larry Bird was perceived both in Boston and without? And not only with Larry Bird, but get this one, perhaps even more so with McHale. Because what McHale could do was block shots on anyone breathing, going a breath on this earth, which included the likes of Dr. J. And it wasn't as if Dr. J was a villain. He was never a villainous figure. Everyone admired and respected and loved Dr. J. But Dr. J was an acrobatic, incredibly athletic, incre- uh, uh, physically in a player. And, he, and to see him get shots blocked by, dare I say it, this Caucasian, yeah, that put a charge in the, in the boys in the second balcony. I wrote that at the time, by the way. No, uh, you had to. Because it was, I thought I had to, because it was so evident. Yes, race definitely played a part. Now, did they, now did Boston consciously go out and get those two guys because they were white? N O no, they consciously went out and got them because they were clearly great players, and both of them turned out to be even better than anybody suspected, as most great players do. But um, uh, they, they would have been stars in any city, obviously, and, and any city would have wanted them. And, and there was never an issue that they were uh, until we had that famous day in '87 when. Uh, Dennis Rodman opened up the can of worms and you know, a whole mess with after the seventh game and and and, and you know where I'm going with that and that was right. the first really one of the that the only time that ever uh, became part of the dialogue in, in terms of the league participants uh, that that Bird happened to be white everyone respected Bird's greatness but in terms of fan popularity oh my God that's so evident that of course being white uh, was was an extra uh, layer of of uh, for people to thrive on and, and the same thing with Mikhail. You said in your book that if aliens came to Earth to play for humanity's future, a healthy Bill Walton is the one player that you would start Earth's team with. Thinking Space Jam, kicking Jordan off, starting yep. with, with Bill Walton. Yep. Um, that he was the most unique big man because you could run both your offense and your defense through him. On a message board called Real GM, uh, a poster named Stadium 5 Joe that you were a biased old-timer um, for saying things like this. Can you tell our younger audience what was so special about healthy Bill Walton that he would get your call ahead of players like Jordan, Bird, Magic, or even Shaq and LeBron? Name a good, a great offensive uh, in, uh, big today, and Walton was a better defender. Name a, better, name a great defensive big today, and Walton was a better offensive player. And now none of them, no player since Walton retired in 1987, no center has passed better than Walton. And I mean in the half court and in starting fast breaks. He's the best passing big man we've known in the last 40 years and, and 50 years. And, that, and a healthy Walton controlled the game. And as I said, you run, it was like a control tower. Now, you ran your offense to him and your defense to him. There's just never, and his rebounding technique was so, I mentioned it, it's extraordinary. His timing was beyond, I never saw a timing like this. He flirted with goaltending time and again by taking balls off the rim at the exact instant that you couldn't really tell whether or not it was still on the rim. It was like sweeping crumbs off a table. Just picture yourself right now sweeping crumbs off the table into your palm, your right hand into your left, or vice versa. That's how Walton took a lot of rebounds right off the rim with the best timing I've ever seen. It's just a shame that, you know, uh, if you're a basketball fan, I just feel sorry for you that you never saw him. The same way if you're, if you're 12 or 13, you never saw him a Michael, you know? So uh, you, this is, he's a unique player. I, I will stand on that statement. And the only guy that would make me pause to think maybe um, I, I'm making a mistake, of course, would be the greatest winner of all time, Bill Russell. Because if we're talking about winning a game for life, 
Well, the fact is that he played 21 games where someone was going home tonight in his career going back to college in the NCAA tournament and going through the Olympics and all best of fives and all best of sevens, and he was 21-0. and 0. So it would be pretty hard for me to say that you wouldn't be doing very well by picking Bill Russell as your first pick. But uh, I'm comfortable with Walton, and I would be very comfortable with Russell. But nobody else for that game. Yeah, for me, that uh, one of the underrated stories of that 86 season was just the poetry of basketball on the court uh, when, when Walton was out there. Just the, the passing and the synchronicity was, was just amazing. And kind of picking up off that theme, earlier in the book, you list out a 1960s dream team of sorts that you state would be able to compete against the best of today's NBA. What would you say to younger fans that look at that era as prehistory and can't fathom how guys like Russell, Jerry West, Oster Robertson, and others could possibly compete with today's athletes? Well, there's a myth. There's a couple things. There's a myth that athleticism started with. Uh, basically, I think people figure it started with Dr. J. Well, there were guys around. There, people don't know of a guy named Jumpin' Johnny Green. Go talk to your grandfather about Jumpin' Johnny Green. He wasn't a great player, but he was a jumping man. I mean, John, Johnny Green got that nickname for a reason, and he let, he let, I mean, this, this is athleticism. There were quick guys. Um, I mean, guys get up and down the floor uh, awful well. There were, there were, there were um, athletic mid-sized players. There were athletic, uh, I mean, there's no problem. But the other, also is the, the fundamental nature of the game. But you look at the guys I'm talking about. You have a backcourt of Oscar Robertson and Jerry West, which until Magic and Michael came along was the consensus all-time backcourt. Mm-hmm. It still would be the consensus of all-time top ten. Uh, there's, they were great, great players. And then we, there's no center around today as good as Will, Will Chamberlain or Bill Russell, period. Mm-hmm. Any, anybody who's with any comp except the basketball understands that. So right away we have an advantage. advantage. Uh, this team was, I said, of guys who played at least five years of their career in the 60s. I mean, we go, we go right to, uh, forward. We've got Bob Pettit. We've got Rick Barry. There's nobody like Rick Barry around today. Not, not quite that style. No, there isn't. I, I'm so comfortable with this team, uh, and there's not even any problem with it. Particularly when I know I'm laughingly starting off with Russell and Chamberlain <laughs> as, uh, as my centers when there's nobody like them around today. So I'm totally comfortable with that. But, I mean, how do you just con- – the, the myth that, there was, that athleticism somehow began in the 80s is a complete myth, believe me. I want to, again, go back to something you said a few minutes ago. You were saying that if um, people are doing NBA comparisons, they automatically compare based on race, that you hardly ever see a black guy compared to a white guy or vice versa. Well, um, coming in today, uh, I actually have a a modern-day black player that I want to compare to some of the um, white players that we've been discussing. So you say that a big part of what made Cowan's great on court was just his fiery personality and relentless work ethic. You've got healthy Walton as your pick against the aliens. Uh, Larry Bird and McHale, between them, they kind of made up a perfect forward for the the, the 80 Celtics. It can be argued that uh, Kevin Garnett compares to all four of those players in a very direct way. You know, he's one of the the most fiery and hardest working players of the era. Uh, yeah, KG. Um, if you look at the nerd stats, which I love to look at, you know, like the plus minus uh-huh. stats, he measures out at his peak as both the best offensive player in the NBA and the best defensive player in the NBA. And he broke all of, of, of Bird's 2010-5 passing, you know, passing and scoring records when he was in uh, in Minnesota. So you got to cover KG up close and personal in the latter yep. half of his career. How would you think he would compare to some of those players? And if you had seen him play at his peak, do you think he would have a chance to be higher up your personal Mount Rushmore as far as um, NBA player history goes? 
You picked a very, 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 very good guy for this argument because uh, I thought about him a lot <clears throat> in this regard. Um, you, everything you say, <clears throat> I can't disagree with. I cannot disagree with anything you say on the nature of his game. Uh, the very first time I saw him when he was a rookie with the Timberwolves, uh, the thing that impressed me that night was passing, his awareness, court awareness, uh, which is, I didn't, you know, that, that's, that's a gift. Uh, that is not a that is not a developed trait. That is that is a, that's a gift, and he had it, and he he saw the floor. He understood the game completely at, at 19 years old, coming into this league, and he passed well. Uh, he was an aggressive player. I don't know. This, he, absolutely, he's a he's a hard playing player. Uh, I there's just a, there's a difference still, and and this now we're not talking about effectiveness now. What I'm about to talk about is simply the fun barroom argument aspect of this, the aesthetics, <laughs> um, not the not the effectiveness. Uh, there was an element, well, there's one element that Garnett, uh, that no one had, that Cowens had, that, that separates Cowens. He was crazy on the court. There were moments when he did stuff that you, you just, you know, you just, you uh, <laughs> uh, dropped your jaw. Garnett had an element of sanity, even though he looked like he was crazy, banging his head against the, the uh, structure before the game. And he played hard. But Cowens played with a frenzy. I don't think you would say that Kevin Garnett, once the ball went up, <clears throat> played with a frenzy. I don't think too many people played with, then or now, played with a frenzy. Cowens did. It was, uh, now, uh, so this is a, an aesthetic thing more than an effectiveness thing. Garnett is four inches taller than Dave Cowens, number one. And he is extraordinarily athletic, and you're right. He has a signature shot, the jump shot, the turnaround jump shot. And he's a curious player, you know, and we all agree that this, I think the three of us as do any, was it, is that he, did he not frustrate you at times because he, was, he took unselfishness to a, 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 a limit, I mean, to a, to a degree that was harmful. He should have scored more points because he was so incredibly deferential offensively. Like he didn't want to acknowledge his talent on offense, his mm-hmm. individual shooting skill was suppressed by Kevin Garnett. Nobody else. Maybe Tim Duncan is great rival. That's about all. <laughs> Nobody else. It's a, so he makes up. So he has his own fascinating psychological profile that is unique to Kevin Garnett. There's nobody like Kevin Garnett. I'm, see, I'm saying there's nobody like Cowens. See, you, you hit him on something here, Andre. Here's the thing. Great players, truly great players, when, we, when it's all said and done, you can't compare them to anybody else. There's something special about what they did, the way they did it, that you as a fan identify with or you identify, and, and, and then you understand. For example, you ever seen anybody like, have you seen anybody like Dennis Johnson? Less, uh, tell me, have you seen anybody like Dennis Johnson in the last 15 years, 20 years? Is there a guard that you'd say, oh, that's the next DJ? No. There was something about every, the whole package of DJ to what he, you know, whether it was the, the dribbles before the free throw for every year he's in the league, the, the cheeks puffing out like a big puffer fish <laughs> coming up court. You know what I mean? Yes, uh, exactly. The, stuff he was, the young Dennis Johnson, who I was privileged to see in the 1979 finals become the MVP. Uh, here's a number for you. He played five games. He was the MVP. He scored over 20 points a game. He blocked 14 shots. <laughs> in a five-game final series from the guard position. Look it up. It's crazy. Who's like that? And Kobe's a great defensive guard. And, and I'm going to say, once again, we're not talking effectiveness as much as how they did it. And so, oh, anyway, so back to Garnett. There ain't nobody like Garnett. I've never seen any seven-foot guy that, that combat had the particular total package, plus the personality, plus the, 
you know, he's his own thing. But that's a, he's a great comparison, Norm. I think you hit it about a guy. They'd be great teammates. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? <laughs> they would. I mean, they would be great teammates. That, that, I wouldn't want to play. Would you want to play against that team? If Nobody would want to play that team. Like playing some night? I don't think so. How about, I was going to say, how about playing with them? Nobody's stepping out of line in that practice. Oh, my God, you know. No, 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 no. So um, I thought Dave, one of my favorite Dave plays, see, Garnett's not making this play because he's ultimately, this, as, as intense as he is, he's ultimately too rational to do this. They were in Portland. I wrote, I wrote about this, and, you know, it's just, and, and the ball went out of bounds behind the Celtic bench. It bounced over the bench. And Cowens jumped over the Celtic bench in pursuit. Oh, no, no, excuse me. The ball was going out of bounds near the Celtic bench, and he jumped over the bench in pursuit. And then the play went, the ball somehow stayed in bounds or knocked it in bounds. And then he, rather than coming back over the bench, he ran behind the press table and jumped in at the other end of the court over the Portland bench. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now that's the play only Dave Cowens would have thought of, I think. You know, that's, so uh, that's the kind of goofy stuff he's doing as well as the, you know, the normal stuff. But this is fun discussion, no question. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that story. That was one of my favorite passages in the book, and it just it, it just sums up uh, Cowan, just the thinking out of the box, the not letting you know conventions stand in the way of what he thinks is the right thing to do, and just and and just committing to it with all the passion that he has. It was just just such a wonderful. And I, story. I brought it up when I was with him lately, lately um, not too long ago, and I brought it up, and he, he laughed. You know, he you know that you know he was no, he didn't think about it. It just happened. It's the way that was his natural reaction. He did it. Well, speaking of the Kevin Garnett and the big three, or the the later big three, in the book you also mention uh, at the time when the trades were made to bring Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett to Boston that you kind of underestimated how well that team would would come together. Um, but at the time, that wasn't actually really mu- very much of a minority opinion. There was there were a lot of doubts. What was it in in retrospect that you think allowed them to be so successful right out of the gate? Well, what allowed that particular three to be successful uh, was the combination of the timing in their careers. They were all they all wanted to win desperately, and the lucky circumstance, although maybe not so lucky because Danny did put it together, of their complementary skills and the fact that that as we said, Garnett was sui generis. We all know what he was about. There was you were going to get this great defensive your, uh, defense. You're going to get this great defensive rebounding. You were going to get uh, keep the line moving and kind of passing. He would get the assist of the pass before the pass assist. That is uh, that is a very crucial part of a of a team offense. And you'd get his reluctant 18 to 20 points a game. <laughs> you know, and then you had Pierce, and we all knew what they all knew what they had in Pierce, and then Ray. Ray, the great consummate gunslinging jump shooter uh, at a point in his career when he, he was hungry to win. And, and so they, that, those two things were a perfect storm. I definitely did. I didn't. What I wrote was utterly, as it turned out, completely uh, wrong. Uh, I thought that the rest of the cast was so weak that there's no way that those three guys, as great as they were, could, be, you know, could find themselves on a championship team. At the time they wrote, that the, the, they made the trade, I wrote that no team in the league would trade its four through 12 players for Boston. Now, that was a bold statement, which uh, turned out to be obviously wrong. Number one, Rondo emerged uh, so significantly in that, in that season uh, that, uh, you know, to become a great player automatically, that certainly I, I never foresaw him taking that step that fast as he did that year. And I did write that before they made some important acquisitions, namely James Posey and uh, Eddie House. 
And, of course, later on, the final piece of the puzzle turned out to be P.J. Brown. But um, they needed those auxiliary players. And if you go to the finals, uh, you, you need, if you don't have great performances at strategic times uh, with uh, Posey and House and, and a very big shot by P.J. Brown to beat the Cavaliers, you don't win. But anyway, um, I, miss, I totally didn't – I just couldn't project – that team, the day that of uh, a roster uh, to being a championship team, and uh, I'm so happily I was, and I mean happily I was wrong. And the last nail in that latest chapter of Celtics history was hammered in a few weeks ago with the Rondo trade. Of course, he was back in town on Friday evening with the Mavericks. What's your perspective on the trade and what it means for the team going forward? Well, we don't know what it means going forward, except that they were never going to trade, give Rondo a max contract. And, of course, if he were going to play like he played on Friday night, then I think he would have. But that's, that's a Rondo that hadn't, he hadn't scored that many points in, in almost two years. Uh, it, what, a, what a fictional storybook that is. Talk about a homecoming of, mm-hmm. of, of, of uh, well, here I am, guys. Uh, <laughs> uh, that give full credit to Rashawn Rondo for a dramatic presence. Um, uh, uh, extraordinary. I think it's one of the great homecoming uh, moments in the history of any sport. Frankly, if you were to look it up. <clears throat> so anyway, um, for the team, it meant that uh, they just stocked out even more draft picks. Okay, Danny, sooner or later, is going to have to make those draft picks worth something because that's what it's all about now. It's about that and about some core players. But I see. I think the Celtics, as constituted right now, have a lot of components, nice, useful players who would be uh, coveted and useful players on on. Good teams uh, in in rotations, you know. I mean, you you know, people, right, including guys like Olenek. At the, I could see Olenek. Can you see Olenek playing for the Spurs? Yeah. And you know, Matt Bonner retire. Olenek take his job for the next ten years. <laughs> I could easily, you know. I mean, this guy you know, Sullinger's got value to people. Avery Bradley's got value to people. I'm I'm a big uh, member of the Marcus Smart fan club. I think he's going to turn out to be a very very good pick. Anyway, they got to play, but but they're all. And, and but one of the problems that Brad Stevens has right now, he's got so many guys who are. You know, okay, players trying to figure out who to play together at any point is, is, is consuming him. You know, trying to find out what's a what's what's a rotation, what's a what's a combination, who should start. These are not easy questions because no guys, no, not no one's separating himself enough at various positions to say I, I, I you know obviously I have to play. I, I personally think Turner has to be out there, but that's just me. So anyway, as far as Rondo's concerned, he now goes. Uh, he's not. He's already at age twenty. What nine? In that circumstance of um, a primal life veteran, uh, it's almost like the championship for him. It's seven. It's going to be seven years yeah. removed. So he's hungry, and he goes to a real good uh, nucleus team. It's not that deep, uh, frankly, and needed a point guard. In fact, needed exactly what he can provide. And and they're going to be back. In, they're going to be in the mix. And it's a good, great scenario for him. Uh, it was. A, they did him a favor. Uh, absolutely, did him a favor, trade him to a better team, and a team that can really make the use of what he can do. Um, so in his point of view, this was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I, I, I go from, you know, whatever the Celtics are going to win and, and, and they go to being in the mix. And uh, from the Celtics' point of view, another move toward whatever the big move is going to be. We don't know what the big move is going to be. And it's interesting to see fan reaction to the trade. It's like folks want uh, simple and easy good guys and bad guys. And my suspicion is the, the the real story was probably a lot more complex behind the scenes. And you contributed to a book by our executive producer at CLNS Radio, Celtics Beat Larry Russell, called The Fall of the Boston Celtics. And in the book, he explores the post-Bird era in detail. 
And I've argued that the 22-year drought and the way that the franchise thrashed around for much of that time has had a pretty significant impact on how a large segment of the fan base still perceives the team in the current rebuilding effort. Do you get the sense that fans in the media are conditioned for a worst-case scenario now that the renaissance of the Pierce, KG, Doc, and Ray Allen era is over? Well, I know I am, <laughs> but, I'm a, but I'm, a, I'm a renowned negative thinker to start with. See, I'm a pessimist by nature. I, I define a pessimist as an optimist with experience. And, and I see no point in optimism, uh, and then you get your hopes dashed. I, I figure if you don't expect much, then, you know, when the good things happen, you're pleasantly surprised. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. That's an excellent point. Uh, I, I think the, uh, you, you, history is a guide. Danny was able to get it done seven, eight years, you know, uh, in the draft day of 19, uh, 2007. He was able to get it done because he had an asset named Al Jefferson, was enough, uh, well, first of all, he, made it, he had an asset named the fifth draft pick, fifth pick in the draft, which was enticing enough for Seattle to part with Ray Allen. And once he had Ray Allen, and the only reason that he could persuade Kevin Garnett to consent to come here was that they had Pearson Allen, and he saw the possibility. Uh, and they also had Al Jefferson uh, as a chip to uh, give uh, Minnesota. And that's how he got it done then. He had a chip, and he had a pick. Well, he's got the picks now. Does he have that Al Jefferson chip? I don't think so. I mean, I, 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 as I, said, I, li- I like Sullinger. I, I, I wish you could count on him every night to do the things that he can do well uh, and, and give us a consistent, uh, say, 18 and 10. I don't see why he can't do that, but there's something he's not, but he, he could, I think. But am I expecting it to happen? Well, I mean, I, I have faith in Danny that he'll, he'll get something done, but uh, it took a long time the first time. Well, for him, of course, it took about four years, so he took over in 03. It took, for him, it took about four years. So you really you, you forget about those years uh, between um, Larry's retirement, well, the first ten years, uh, because um, when Dan, it, it all changed. This regime, let's just start it with this regime. And in this regime, they, the guy took him four years with Danny in the charge to make the move to set the forces in motion to have a, a six-year run. You know, we got, I, I was kiddingly saying every year, well, it's the fourth year of a three-year plan, it's the fifth year of a three-year plan, it's the sixth year of a three-year plan, and that's going to turn out to be six years of a three-year plan. You know what really hurts is uh, 2010. I can't get it out of my mind. I was there. That, that thing should have been won. Uh, that, that's, a, that's one that got away. Really, really, really painful. They should have won that championship. That would have been great, and that really would have crowned the era. I actually was in L.A. I flew out to L.A. for that Game 7 and was in the house and sitting, me and my son, wearing Kevin Garnett jerseys in the midst of thousands of Laker fans, all giving me grief the whole game. That was one of the most painful experiences of my life. And what it came down to was 94 seconds, four possessions, 94 seconds, Subs went from up three to down six in, in 94 seconds. It all started as so many great Laker moments of that era started. Derek Fisher hitting the three. Yep. And um, how many times is that the story of the West, huh? Derek Fisher hitting a three. And then yeah. it went from there. And, um, uh, you know, but not having Perkins. Uh, you know, we needed Rasheed to give us one game. He couldn't do couldn't it. Couldn't do it. He never was in shape all year. Everybody knew it. You know, and, um, you know, he, I, I'm not blaming him, but... You know, come on, see, be a pro. This is why he's not in the Hall of Fame. He could have been the greatest power forward. You know, it's funny. The two guys who could, you, you can make a case. I'm really rambling. Don't, you know, the, the, could have been the greatest power forward of all time because of their tools and their brains. And this is why they drives you nuts because it was because of their damn brains. They were so, you know, they thought too much about two. 
Derek Coleman yeah. and Rasheed Wallace could <laughs> either one of them could have been the greatest power forward of all time. And neither one's going close to the Hall of Fame because of their own self limitations. I want to um, pivot back a little bit. You were talking about um, Danny Ainge and how he's eventually going to have to make these picks. In preparing to talk to you, we opened uh, opened it up to some of the message boards that are out there, particularly Real GM and Celtics blog. And some of the posters on there had some questions. So a poster named Tim Piker on Celtics blog, he wants he he wants your opinion on what Red would do different than Danny um, to get these Celtics back to the top. Oh, it's a different world, though. I, I, I Red would do different than Danny. I'm just trying to think of the big moves, you know. You know, he didn't do anything that was – he made smart moves. I mean, and when he made them, I mean, a, a lot of times. I mean, obviously, no one's going to make a better draft day move than 1980 when he winds up trading the number one and the number 13 pick for, for uh, Kevin McHale and Robert <laughs> Parrish. Uh, you're not going to have a trade like that too often. I, I, I don't know that I can say that. I think uh, that it isn't a matter of that. I don't think that uh, Red, Red would – you'd have to deal with the landscape. You know, who's your talent pool? And 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 um, Red's most famous, one of his most famous moves, and of course, number one one was the Bill Russell one, but that was a different world. I don't think you're going to be able to trade a, a place in the draft for the for the ice capades, do you? I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, not the same. So forget that. But um, you know, you know, Red once went nine years without making a trade, a player for player. He only trade, he only bought players. He he hated trading his players. He, he was loyal, I and mean, that was a different world. You know, he went nine years. Uh, before he made a trade, uh, an actual body for body. He had traded Mel Counts for Bailey Howell, and then in 1975 he traded the, the West Fall and Charlie Scott trade. But that was, uh, that was a nine-year interval in, uh, during which he only uh, either uh, you know, paid cash for players, but he never made a body-for-body body trade. So I, you're not going to do that uh, uh, anymore. So I don't know. I don't think that's the issue. I really don't. I, I'm sorry. So I can't really answer it. Um, I just don't think that's the issue. I'm, I'm going to pivot back to you a little bit and your unique experience, things that you talked about in the book. Um, we, we, mm-hmm. One of our themes today has been the difference between then and now, you know, how things have changed yeah. on the court. A poster named MN Wiss 21 on Real GM, he had a question about how social, social media has kind of transformed your job. Um, and he said, yeah. it seems that nowadays journalists are more concerned with being first and being right. Also, uh, are today's local beat writers maybe afraid of losing team access so they might have a tendency to write puff pieces as opposed to really trying to dig into the players because the players have their own platform to be able to to put their message out there. So his question for you is, is it possible for these days reporters to be more critical when they need to be yet still toe that line to, to be able to keep their premier access? I don't think that the fact that the players can shoot back directly to the fans has really affected the thinking process of the, of the uh, writers in this regard that we're speaking. It's a very, very good question. It's a very fair question from uh, a reader. Uh, and, uh, I think um, that, no, I don't think that dynamic has changed at, at all. I just think the, the, the central dynamic of you need to have uh, uh, the, the cojones to write uh, critically, not unfairly. See, the word to me is fairness. It's not objectivity. Uh, that's not or subjectivity. That's nonsense. You you have a point of view and you have to use it. But you you try to be fair. Uh, that's the the key. And and you know that things certain things are going to be written that are going to alienate people, and you're going to have to deal with the angry people. Uh, and uh, and you hope that you people are reasonable, and sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. Uh, you know, even if they think they're reasonable, that they may not be. I mean, I was. I mean, Cowan's, uh, for example, used to say, "I don't care what you write if it's fair." Well, you know, who's judging that? You know, him ultimately, of course. <laughs> but, but I don't think that uh, to make you. I would say that 
I don't think you translate this uh, new world into the idea that just because the player has a, a, a social media has a chance to fire to bypass the media and go right to the fan, that uh, it changes how the writer's going to look. Uh, and I don't think those essential dynamics have changed in that regard. The logistics are what's the most th the thing that's changed so much. Uh, the, the idea of the the constant tweeting and blogging and pressure to produce stuff 24/7. It seems you feel that way, which I never had. I mean, there were times. I mean, when my first go round in the 60s. Um, there was no, you know, pregame writing at all. There was no pregame. You'd go and you'd go in to the locker room, and, and they had to be there. Tom Heinsohn rule was players had to be in the locker room two hours before the game, and you and the locker room was totally open until, uh, you know, twenty forty five minutes or, or uh, half hour before the game, totally open. And so you went in and you hung around, and that was fine. And you talked to guys, and it was casual, and you know, and and and, and then you do and the same thing. And you go in the visiting room. Uh, if you knew someone, that was great. If you didn't, you introduced yourself. You know, and this is before uh, the first problem that we encountered, guys, were the advent of headphones. <laughs> and when, <laughs> when, when, when uh, the Sony Walkman was yeah. our first big enemy. <laughs> I'll never forget the Sony Walkman. What is this? What, why, why, what's he listening to? Why, you know, and, uh, you know, that guy could, you know, look, stare into space and, and be very forbidding looking, uh, uh, and telling you he doesn't want to talk to you uh, by very virtue of the fact he's listening to a Sony Walkman. That was the first big enemy of the media. Nobody talks about that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> way before Beats by uh, Dre. But that's the way it was then. Uh, you, you had this access, and, and uh, uh, I didn't have to write anything. There were no pregame notes. You know, I mean, now it's just, you're just burdened with stuff. Uh, it's, it's relentless. And you're tweeting during the game, which I can't fathom. I never had to do that. And <laughs> No, really, I didn't. And it's a really time-consuming, uh, pressurized job in a way that it wasn't. Uh, you know, in years past, and that's the big difference, I think, really, rather than the relationship. The relationship thing is is, is a byproduct of you don't travel with them anymore, you don't uh, fly on the plane with them, you don't stay in the same hotel necessarily with them, you don't have constant pregame access or practice access. You have very limited access uh, after practice with guys. You don't get to know them. They don't get to know you. They don't get to know you as a person. Uh, you know, and uh, and you know, I knew all their wives and kids' names and. Uh, you know, everything about where they went to school and their brother and all that. And, you know, this, you can't get a relationship like that now. It's impossible. Based a lot on what you were just saying here, um, a poster named Ob Obnoxious Mime from Celtics Blog. <laughs> he says, given that you have always been not just a journalist but an unabashed fan, do you think that the blurring of the line between journalist and fan in today's media landscape has gone too far? And if you became a journalist today, would you still have cut your teeth as a beat writer for a newspaper that fewer and fewer people read, or would you have gone into TV at a younger age? That's a hell of a question. Uh, see, knowing what I know now, I would say probably the form. Uh, yeah, yeah, I probably would have sought to go into uh, electronic media uh, first. It's where it's at. Print is not where it's at. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's aesthetically sad. It's, it's so good for the soul. Uh, uh, you know, uh, but it, it's not good for the for the ex exposure the way it was uh, in, in those days. I mean, I when I was covering the Celtics in the seventies, I was the single most important media person in New England of, with regard to the Celtics. More important than television, radio, anybody it was the guy who covered for the Boston Globe, the dominant uh, media outlet in all of New England. That's what it was like, and in the eighties to a large extent too. 
uh, that's laughably gone to the, into the, you know, receded in memory. That's not possible now. Um, the other part, first part of the question, well, I disagree totally because I don't think that's the case at all. I think I won't say unique. I would say I'm very, very much in a minority in that I will willingly profess and admit to being a fan. It has never been uh, in vogue to admit or claim that you were a fan. You're supposed to be this impartial observer and uh, don't care who wins and loses and don't have strong personal opinions that are to interfere or, uh, with the writing. Uh, that's not the case at all today. Most people today are uh, uh, working hard to, to create the image of detachment and are not projecting themselves as fans. I think you have to be true to your personality. I could not have approached this job in any other way because I am a fan and I do have a fan feel. And typically with basketball, which I played, you know, into my 40s, uh, which I loved and, and I wish I could be playing today, um, I, I played a lot of basketball and I had a lot of opinions. And I, I think I know not only good from bad, but good from great. And, and uh, I, I, I bring that and I love the game. Uh, uh, and I, I am just a naturally enthusiastic person about it. So I would say that the premise of, uh, is incorrect. Believe me, most writers or most so-called journalists, you know, I say so-called only because it's, it's a fancy word, uh, are, are trying to project themselves as anything but a fan. I'm the, I'm the minority. Former Boston Globe sports writer and ESPN personality Bob Ryan has been our guest. You can follow Bob on Twitter at GlobeBobRyan. And please head over to Amazon or your favorite bookseller and pick up Scribe, My Life in Sports. Thanks so much for joining us today, Bob. And really, thanks for sharing your experiences in your book. Well, I really enjoyed that. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye now. My pleasure and an honor. Well, Andre, one thread I want to pick up from the interview is the idea that the 22-year drought between championships that is the focus of Larry's book, The Fall of the Boston Celtics, is having a significant impact on how fans perceive the current state of the team and the rebuilding effort that Ainge and company are undertaking. I hear it from many fans in the comments about Ainge as if he's a patino in sheep's clothing. What's your take <laughs> on the way fans are kind of you know coming to grips with the rebuilding effort right now? Yeah, it's interesting because... Um it was such a long drought, and then there's so much kind of glory to the Celtics history that it really makes an interesting dichotomy because, you know, we're talking about a fan base that's not used to not winning. And then going 20-something years, that was traumatizing. And, and now there's the chance that it's happening again or, or the, the perception that it could happen again. And, and so I do see kind of different groups of fans. There are the in Danny We Trust fans that – kind of cling on to the fact that, hey, Danny pulled us out of it before. And, um, you know, he's got his pieces, he's making moves, and, and this is all part of a big plan to, to, to get us to that next one a lot sooner. Um, and then there's the opposite. There's kind of the cynical uh, perspective that, you know what, like um, essentially we got lucky. In 2007, 2008, um, that was a, a flash in the pan, lightning in a bottle. And, um, you know, any, any of the, the, the current players – are bums. Um, they're they're never going to amount to anything, and you know, and 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 Danny's in over his head. So um, I, I think there's a kind of a a mix of feelings, and you know, they always say that the way to quiet everybody down is to win. So that's not going to happen this year. But um, you know, I, I think Danny's got quite a bit of um, coin in the bank with with the Celtics franchise. So he's going to be here for a little while. If he's here long enough to to get those wins, then that that'll uh, shut everybody up. 
It's interesting in talking to various folks associated with the team, particularly in our conversation with Rich Gotham, the team president over the summer, you know, he made it clear that the team is trying to do the things they need to do to put themselves into a position to capitalize on any opportunities that come up. Um, but, you, you know, you're somewhat reliant on uh, the opportunities coming up and, and really how you match up with the agenda of the folks on the other side of the table. And we kind of saw that with the Kevin Love situation, which seemed to be perfect from a Celtics perspective, uh, but but clearly didn't match up with with what Minnesota's agenda was. And so luck is always the residue of design. So I think there was an element of luck in putting together that 2008 team, but it works both ways. And this was one of the things that I found really fascinating about Larry's book and and something he did a great job of was really going in and examining uh, all of the the, the factors that led to that 22 years of between championships and a lot of it really just just dismal times and you know if you look at some of the contributing factors to that to that time frame you know the the death of not just one but two potential franchise players you look at a period of time where they were really their their organization was marked by frankly, absentee ownership uh, in uh, Paul Gaston. Uh, thanks, Dad Gaston, as Dan Shaughnessy called him. And, uh, you know, really management that, you know, maybe was was incompetent, maybe maybe wasn't, but certainly you can't argue that there was a large degree of, of a lack of alignment across the organization. And so, you know, when, when I talk about that time period affecting Celtics fans' perceptions now, if you look and contrast all of the things that were happening in that 22-year period with where they sit right now, even setting aside, you know, the specifics of the assets they have, the specifics of the players they have and where their development uh, is right now, and you look at the highest level, you've got ownership that has demonstrated that they're committed to winning, right? You've got an organization that, if nothing else, is aligned. Right. And, you know, I think those two factors, um, you know, really put the team in a very different place than they were through through much of the 90s. Now, that's no guarantee. They need to make good decisions. I, I've seen a lot of uh, talk in the media the last couple of days and among fans about, well, the importance of not making short term decisions, not making short term decisions. But there's a balance there. I, I, I don't think anybody in the organization thinks the answer is, hey, we're just going to, you know, wait and, and draft all these players and eventually what will have a winner, right? You know, there's there's a balance to be struck there, and that's the the art of, of rebuilding an organization, uh, particularly in a way that you hope will lead to sustainable success, not just, you know, kind of a, sh- a short three or four-year uh, window, as, as we saw with 2008. And so I think they're doing that right now, and if you kind of just step back and look at it at that macro level, you have to feel good about the team's chances, but I, I don't see folks, you know, really frequently stepping or consistently stepping back and looking at the macro level and I I think a lot of that is is an anxiety that uh, is kind of a residue of that that 22 year drought and just just the miserable time that that fans really had for much of that time period yeah yeah when, when you've been kind of burned before so to speak it's it's difficult to always maintain perspective well, before we go, I want to remind folks to check out the Garden Report in our YouTube channel, www.youtube.com CLNS Radio. You'll get high-definition, full-length locker room interviews on the Garden Report shot by Jared Weiss right on the parquet floor at TD Garden. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Well, great episode, Andre. Uh, you know, as always, uh, great having you on. And Bob Ryan, of course, is uh, in the Celtics <laughs> Beat Hall of Fame as, as a guest. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, um, I mean, Bob Ryan was cool and all, but the episode was really great because I was on here. It was what you were trying to say. Of course, of course. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for this week's edition of Celtics Beat. Music for Celtics Beat was provided by Chuck Dietz, Astrovex, and Steph Legrato. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore Beat, and you can like Celtics Beat on CLS Radio on Facebook to keep up with the show. I'd like to thank our guest, the great Bob Ryan, for our staff writer, Eddie Santiago, executive producer, Larry A. Trussell, my co-host, Andre Snellings of Rotowire. I'm Rich Conti. See you next Sunday for another edition of Celtics Beat, exclusively on CLNS Radio.